Hello there, and welcome back to the EuropeLex podcast, the only podcast on your feed that's been so busy this week they haven't thought of an intro joke. I'm Ewan Healy, and with me, of course, is not Gabriel Hemingren, but instead the soothing voice of History Corner, Matthew Nicholson, who's filling in for Gabriel. Matthew, welcome to the podcast. Hello. It's good to be back again. It's great to have you. Obviously, you replaced me when I was on holiday back in August, and now you're replacing Gabriel when he's on holiday. He's hopefully going to enjoy a very well-deserved vacation break from the real world over the next week. In this episode, we are joined by award-winning journalist Jan Mulacek, currently an editor at the Czech site and newspaper Denik N. We will, of course, be talking about everything to do with everything that's going to come after the parliamentary elections in the Central European country. Before all of that, you can support us. How? Well, listen to this sponsor and find out how. Do you want to be one of the volunteers that are behind your blacks in this podcast? We're currently on the lookout for an audiovisual editor that can help our podcast and YouTube team create and edit content like what you're hearing right now. But only better, of course, we're trying to improve all the time. If you're interested in joining our team or know someone who would be, please do reach out to us at podcast at Europlex is run by volunteers. We aren't funded by any big donors and everything we do, including this podcast, is only possible with the help of our supporters. And we want to do more. We started sharing exclusive discussions, special content and more through our Patreon. Access all that from as little as one euro per month. Don't miss out. Support us by becoming a patron on Patreon. So to start off our headlines and our electoral news this week, I'm going to take you to Czechia, where we will neither confirm or deny that the Europlex newsroom thoroughly enjoyed watching results come in and steadily going from a sort of replication of the previous role to a massive toss-up for the first two parties over the course of the night. We were refreshing the vote every few seconds during that last 10% of the votes because we're all nerds. Like, well, I mean, obviously that's true, but it was very exciting. Anyway, centrist Anno of Andrei Babish did end up coming second in vote share with 27.1% of the vote, but first at seat allocation with 72 out of 200 seats in the lower chamber. The centre-right union Spolu, on the other hand, ended up being the largest political force in terms of vote share with 27.8% of the vote and second in parliamentary seats on 71. Spolu, of course, is a centre-right alliance of National Conservative ODS, centre-right KDU-CSL, and the centre-right top nine. Following the results, the alliance signed a memorandum about forming a new government coalition with the Green and centre-right PAS, as mayors and pirates, with ODS's Petra Fiala as the proposed prime minister. PAS came in third with 15.6% of the vote, that's 37 seats. It should be noted, however, that the largest force within the PAS alliance is handily the centre-right STAN, that managed to elect 33 of the 37 MPs for the bloc. So that's 27 more than in their last election result. The Czech Pirate Party, on the other hand, has just four of the 37 MPs when they had had 22 in the previous parliament. So it's a big drop for them. Regarding other parties, the right-wing SPD came fourth with 20 seats, a drop of two seats. Meanwhile, the left-wing Communist Party and the centre-left Social Democrats each failed to pass the 5% threshold and will not be in the parliament this time for the first time in the country's history since its independence in 1996. So all in all, the result in Czechia comes very much against other results in Europe as the centre-right EPP gained across the board and two alliances of mostly centre-right parties should be expected to form a new government and likely marking an end to Andrei Babish's rule. That being said, 
Czech President Milos Zeman's hospitalization after the election result has created a little bit of a limbo as it is up to him to select the next prime minister to form government. And there is a chance he will select Andrei Babish as the leader of the largest party, even though there is no clear path for him to a necessary majority, as lots of his allies fell short. We'll talk about more of that in the interview later on with Jan Mulacic. So stick around for that. It's going to be really interesting. Yeah, there were some dramatic scenes, weren't there, when um, Zeman was hospitalised immediately after his meeting with Babish. So it's unclear how that's going to proceed going ahead in the coming weeks. But in other news, looking a little bit further south, uh, we go to Italy, where the centre-left Democratic Party, or PD, was the main winner in the first round of the country's local elections that took place on October the 3rd and October the 4th. Voters went to the polls to elect mayors and city council members in 1,154 municipalities, including Rome, Naples, Milan and Turin, as well as a new regional governor in Calabria. PD made it to the second round in the election for Rome and Turin, and has already won the cities of Milan, Naples and Bologna. The centre-left party is well positioned to snatch the capital away from the incumbent Virginia Raggi of the Five Star Movement, who did not make it to the second round. Roberto Galtieri of PD and centre-right Enrico Michetti will instead compete for the mayorship of the Eternal City. The Five Star Movement, on the other hand, has lost vote share in Rome, falling to 10% in Turin, and its percentage declined dramatically in Milan to 3%. One of the few bright spots appears to be the election of Gaetano Manfredi in Naples, supported by a centre-left coalition in which the Five Star Movement participated. Meanwhile, Silvio Berlusconi's centre-right Forza Italia dropped from 20% to 7% in Milan, also losing ground in Bologna, Naples, Rome and Turin. However, Forza Italia did win Calabria, electing Roberto Occhiotto as governor. The national conservative Fratelli d'Italia made gains in almost all of the regional elections and only saw a drop in votes in Calabria, from 10.9% to 8.7%. At the same time, Matteo Salvini's right-wing Liga dropped from 12.3% to 8.3% in Calabria, remaining stable in Milan, growing in Turin, and dropping from 10% to 7% in Bologna. And one last trend that's apparent in this election was the low turnout, which fell to 54.7%. The turnout was even lower in the cities themselves, ranging from 47.2% in Naples, 47.7% in Milan, 48.6% in Turin, and 48.8% in Rome. So a bit lower in all the main cities than the actual national average, which is quite an interesting trend. Staying in the Italian peninsula briefly, this time in the old Republican microstate of San Marino. On the first day of October, two new captains regent were elected by the Consiglio Grande Generale, the San Marinese National Parliament. The captains regent are the head of state and government of the Mediterranean Republic, nominated every six months by the state's legislative council, following a medieval tradition with over 700 years of history. The two new captains regent are Giacomo Simoncini from the centre-left Socialist Party and Francesco Mussoni from the centre-right Samaranese Christian Democratic Party, and their term will last until the 1st of April next year. And I'm sure we'll be back in about six months' time to provide the details of the next handover. Absolutely. The rapid change, rapid fire changeover. It's very exciting. Yeah, very important news. You know, we, we have to we have to keep top of it. And now moving away from electoral news, we shall keep up with a government crisis saga that's continuing in Romania. 
As we mentioned in our previous episodes, the centre-right PNL-led government of Florencito had motions of no confidence against it, following the liberal USR Plus leaving the government over the sacking of Stellian Ion and the government's infrastructure programme. The motion of no confidence was successful, and with 281 MPs voting against the Prime Minister, the Chitu government lost the Parliament's confidence. And after consultations with party leaders, President Klaus Johannes nominated Dacian Kiolos, leader of liberal USR Plus, to form a new government. USR Plus has indicated that they would prefer a return to the previous governing coalition with centre-right PNL and centre-right UDMR, which would mean that the major change would be in the Prime Minister rather than the actual composition of the government. It will, however, be difficult for PNL to support such a coalition, even though, unlike the centre-left opposition of PSD, they don't favour snap elections. So with the far-right AUR ruling out any support for a Kiolosh-led government, the government crisis is yet again ongoing, and we should expect another chapter in our new episode. It's becoming a bit like a, a recurring feature. Maybe we can get to a season finale by the, the end of the, the year. That'd be, that'd be a nice Christmas present. That'd be nice. Meanwhile, in Austria, a new chancellor was appointed after the resignation of the previous chancellor, Sebastian Kurz, the OVP, last Saturday. Kurz resigned as a result of being embroiled in a corruption investigation and accusations that he used government money to essentially buy positive news coverage. The ex-chancellor will remain a member of parliament and is not quitting his leadership of the OVP. He will instead be the head of the parliamentary group and continue to sit in the cabinet. The new chancellor who was sworn in on Monday is Alexander Schallenberg, who up to that point was Kurtz's foreign minister. Schallenberg is a lawyer by training and began his career as the head of the legal section of Austria's EU delegation in Brussels. He served as a spokesperson for the foreign ministry from 2006 to 2019, and he was appointed as a transitional foreign minister when the coalition of centre-right ÖVP and the right-wing FPÖ collapsed as a result of the Ibithagate scandal. After Kurtz won the subsequent elections, Schallenberg was reappointed as foreign minister and is seen as a close ally of the former chancellor and continues to defend him against corruption allegations. His rule started off with a no-confidence vote, but with the help of the Greens, he has survived. So now we will have to see how involved Kurtz will be in governing and what the corruption investigation will bring about, whether this is the end of Sebastian Kurtz as a force in both domestic and European politics. Uh, and to bring balance to this collapsing government, uh, we will now look at a government that has been created in Norway. With 76 out of the 169 seats in Parliament, the centre-left Labour Party, AP, and the centrist Centre Party agreed to form a minority government, with Labour leader Jonas Gare Stuer taking over as Prime Minister. The coalition agreement includes several tax cuts for people on lower income brackets, and policies for better working conditions, more affordable childcare, and lower taxes on electricity. But regarding this major issue of Norway's reliance on the oil and gas industry, the new government will not be giving up on them, and while they plan to continue their oil and gas exploration, there will be targets to cut carbon net emissions by 55% by 2030. So falling a bit short of what some of the parties running in that election were looking for. So there'll be some interesting dynamics there, I think, going ahead in the next few years. And obviously, we're all in the shadow of the Global Climate Conference comes next week. And so that is a, a bold decision ahead of what will be, hopefully, a very successful climate conference in Glasgow. Indeed just happening down the road from where you are. Mere metres away, it's going to be very busy in the city. It'll be great. Moving now to Europe's eastern point, very much not down the road from me, in the northern part of the island of Cyprus. There, the conservative Turkish Cypriot Ersan Sana, Prime Minister of the breakaway state that is recognised only by Turkey, announced the resignation of his government due to constant infighting among the right-wing coalition partners, as well as an ongoing boycott of the parliament by opposition. 
It is yet unknown whether this will lead to snap elections or another consequence, but this will depend on the right-wing, unrecognised President Essin Qatar's decisions. And now we start with our polling highlights in a country that we'll probably be talking about more and more in the following months, uh, and that would be France. In the latest presidential polls, we see right-wing Rassemblement National Presidential Candidate Marine Le Pen still losing ground to potential candidate Eric Zemmour. As we have mentioned before, Zemmour is a far-right writer and TV pundit, and has been rising as of late, with multiple record highs in scenario polls which include him. His all-time record high so far is at a whooping 18%, and even more importantly, ahead of Marine Le Pen in second place. Based on current polling, Zemmour would be losing in the second round to the liberal incumbent president Emmanuel Macron, but with the far-right journalist not having yet declared he would run, it certainly is too soon to tell. And in a lot of these scenario polls, the margin between Zemmour, Le Pen, and other candidates, especially from Les Républicains, is often incredibly tight. So there is certainly, with several months to go, a lot of room for things to change. Le Pen is also threatened by one of these candidates, Xavier Bertrand, who is close or tied to her in several scenario polls. So it'll be important to see who will run in next year's presidential election and with what party support. Especially as right now, as we record this, the centre-left Parti Socialist's primary is going underway. So we'll be watching closely there and bringing the results when they come, probably in the next episode. Mm. Although it's worth noting that um, the the Socialist Party isn't really within uh, the boundaries of being able to get into the second round yet in any of the polling. But that could perhaps change in coming months. We've seen stranger things happen. Now, looking to post-election Germany, where the left-wing Die Linke has reached a new record low in an Inter poll with 4%. This is their worst polling result since 2012 and would be their worst election result in their history, equal to their predecessor party, PDS's result in 2002. The same poll gave Liberal FDP a new record high with 14.5%, their highest result since 2009. In general, the latest polls in Germany show Liberal FDP and centre-left SPD gaining after the election and centre-right CDU, CSU falling even more. Definitely a quick example of post-election bandwagoning. And speaking of post-election bandwagoning, in Austria, where loyal listeners will recall the newly created anti-lockdown and vaccine-skeptic party Menschen Freiheit Grundrechte, or MFG, managed to do well and actually received three seats in the regional parliament of Upper Austria. Now, following this electoral breakthrough, MFG has been polling well in national polls as well, receiving multiple record highs and even reaching 7% in the latest IFDD poll. At the same time, left-wing KPU also showed up in a poll, reaching 4% in a research affairs poll, which, for those who've been paying attention to Austrian politics, will know is the pollster that has been embroiled in part of this scandal uh, around Sebastian Kurz. So we shall make no comment on this specific pollster at present. And now we go to Turkey, where President Erdogan's right-wing AKP reached another record low in the latest ACAM poll. The party has polled at 28.2%, and if repeated in an election, would be the party's worst result in history. Now, while that it is a record low, the last record low was 28.3% just a few weeks ago. So the main takeaway is that the AKP appears to be on a downward trend, but this is hardly a dramatic drop. I look forward to the AKP reaching 28.1% uh, in our next podcast uh, <laughs> updates. But uh, moving on, we go to neighbouring Bulgaria, where a new political force has been polling incredibly well, capitalising on ITN's fall ahead of the third elections in a year. We Continue the Change, or perhaps slightly more catchy, PP, was formed by two former ministers of the caretaker government, Kirill Petkov and Asen Vasilev, and are polling at 16% and third place, with centre-right SEC, 
centre-left PDS, and Eurofederalist Volt Bulgaria being part of the alliance. Regarding ITN's fall that I just mentioned, the latest Alpha Research poll shows ITN at 10.4%, a massive drop from the 24% that they received in the July election, losing over half of their support in just a few months. So quite the roller coaster for party leader Slavi Trifonov. And finally for this week, passing the northern border, we go to Romania, where in the latest Gazeta Civica poll, the newly founded National Conservative APP, uh, Alliance for the Fatherland in English, made its first appearance in a poll at 3%. The party was founded last month by Kodrin Stefanescu, a former politician of the SND-affiliated PSD. And now, finally, uh, leaving the best to last, and one of the things that we are most proud of here at Europlex is our EU parliamentary projection, reflecting polling movements and offering an indication of how voters in the European Union would vote should there be an EU Parliament election today. This month's projection is quite interesting, as it shows three different toss-ups for first, fourth and sixth place. In first place, we see the centre-right European People's Party group being at 156 seats, one down from last month's projection, and staying relatively stable. But coming up behind them is the centre-left Socialist and Democrats group at 154 seats, up seven since August. So quite a rise for the centre-left group, making things a little bit more interesting at the European level. Liberal Renew Europe is at 94 seats, remaining at third place. And for the fourth place, we continue to have national conservative, European conservatives and reformists, and right-wing identity and democracy battling it out with ECR coming out on top this month with 78 seats to ID's 75. Our last toss-up is for sixth place, where the left and the Greens European Free Alliance groups are at 50 and 47 seats respectively. For a more detailed analysis, to see how many seats the non Greets would have, and how national developments like the German federal elections affect this month's projection, you can check the full projection on europelex.eu. And that's all the news and polling highlights from around the continent for this month and there's been some juicy stories in there thanks very much for listening to those stick around for our discussion with the journalist Jan Muacek and look out for our coverage in the coming days of we elections coming up this weekend uh, with local elections in Estonia, Italy, North Macedonia and Kosovo Hey everyone, if you like this podcast and want to help us grow, be sure to subscribe and drop us a review on whatever platform it is you're listening to us on. And of course, tell your friends, your fellow political nerds all about us. That would mean the absolute world. We love making this podcast and we love it when you guys love it. So if you've got an idea for a segment, thoughts on a topic that we should be covering, or even if you just want to say hi to us, drop us an email, podcast at europolex.eu. Welcome back to the Europolex podcast, folks, where we have a very exciting interview coming up now where we're going to be discussing all of the interesting intricacies of last week's elections in the Czech Republic, in Czechia. And with me to do that is a journalist from Denik N, uh, Jan Molecik, who is here to just help us understand everything that's been going on. Uh, Jan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Hi. Great to have you on. So, I mean, there's so much to, to talk about. What would you say is the, the biggest news story for you out of this election? This story definitely is uh, the most probable end of uh, Babish at power. Andrei Babish is the current prime minister of Czech Republic. The election was in large part about him, about whether he is going to uh, continue at the head of government or whether he has to go to opposition or politics. Uh, 
whatsoever. The result is quite surprising because uh, the main question of this election was not so much who will be the winner, but who will be the loser. I mean, who will fail, which parties will fail to get over the 5% necessary to enter parliament. This might sound surprising because obviously elections are usually about winners, but in Czech proportional system, to be a winner is not enough unless you, of course, win more than half of the seats in the parliament. If you don't, then even as a winner, you need to have coalition partners to form a majority government. And possible coalition partners of Andrei Babish were all struggling to enter the parliament at all. They were three parties. And the most important question was how many of them, one, two or three, will manage. And none of them actually did all failed to win seats. And this was partly because their voters turned to Andrei Babish. So he is basically a victim to his own success. He drained the votes from his potential partners. That's why they failed. And that's why he is now without a majority. And that's why he will most probably end as a leader. Yeah, and one such party that I think a lot of uh, Europeans have watched is a is a formerly you know very historic party in Czech history, the the CSSD, the Social Democrats, who've been banished from the national parliament for the first time. What's behind the collapse of the centre left in the Czech Republic this time? Is it just the uh, voters there going over to support Babish's party, or is there something else going on behind the scenes? Well, this is the main reason, I think, uh, probably 90% of the, of the uh, reasons behind the collapse of uh, social democrats. They were in government with Andrei Babish, so they even could not uh, criticize him. They couldn't position themselves uh, um, on a platform of uh, critique and uh, uh, opposition uh, towards him. So they had really no... Uh, no, nothing much to do, nothing much to promise, nothing much to, to campaign on. There were, uh, or there have been two parties in the lower house traditionally that describe themselves as left. One of them were the Social Democrats you are talking about, and the other one was the Communist Party. Both are leaving the parliament now, both for the first time in history. Uh, the Communist Party is not much lost for the political situation. It was quite clear that the old communists will go sooner or later. They knew it themselves. It took, uh, I think, rather longer than most expected. So this is a story that I think we can consider over. Social Democrats are a very different story. This is a party that played major role in post-communist post Czech politics. It definitely is a regular democratic party and its disappearance from Czech politics or absence in parliament is something that may create problems. Both parties, I think, collapsed because of the reason you named. Uh, Andrei Babiš took over the majority of their traditional voters, seniors, uh, pensioners, uh, but also the more, let's say, the more um, socially and economically, let's say, vulnerable part of the now, of course, if these people keep voting for populist or in worse scenario for extremist parties instead of democratic left, it might be a huge problem in future elections. So I think it's very important that either the social democrats manage to somehow consolidate themselves, become an option again, 
or, or that some new democratic left option emerges. I don't see any at, uh, at present, but uh, of course that can change. Yeah, it's a really interesting one because obviously, you know, it, it's only t less than 10 years ago that the uh, Social Democrats were the largest party. So it's, it's a it's sort of meteoric collapse there. I think it was a huge mistake uh, by the social, made by the Social Democrats to stay in the government with Andrei Babish for the whole term. They had some, uh, I think, uh, reasonable reasons to enter the government. They, they, they uh, said that uh, if they don't, uh, then Andrei Babish will be forced to govern, uh, to, to, uh, to rule with um, extremist uh, forces. So uh, they, they claim that they are going to prevent this, which was uh, in part at least true. But uh, they stayed in the government also when uh, it turned out that Andrei Babish actually votes in the parliament with the extremists and other populist forces, for example, with the communists. And uh, so they did not really prevent this too much. And they still uh, uh, stayed in the, in, in the government. And, and I think that was a huge mistake. And this, Part of the reason why the result in this election was so poor. And now we're looking like they could have got the worst of both worlds because while they were in government with Babish, he was voting with the far right and with the other extremists. And now they've left the parliament. It looks like Babish may have to turn to work with uh, other extremists if he can, because that's the question, right? Because President Zeman has obviously said that the Babish as the largest party will get the first choice uh, at trying to decide uh, to find coalition partners. Will he uh, reach out to perhaps extremist parties that he hasn't worked with in the past? Well, uh, I think that there is right now really only one realistic possibility, and that is the coalition of the two opposition blocs. Of course, as you say, Andrei Babish says he wants to negotiate, uh, and we know that President Miloš Zeman is a very ardent and open supporter of Andrei Babish, and he made clear before the election that he would do everything to keep Andrei Babish in power. But, first of all, the majority of the opposition blocs is simply too clear to ignore, even for Zeman, who otherwise ignores a great lot, usually. And, and second, of course, I don't know if your listeners uh, are aware of this, but uh, the Czech president is currently very seriously ill. He is in intensive care unit right now, and there are sincere doubts that he will be able to play any significant role in the government. Of course, Andrei Babish does not want to rule, does not want to connect himself with, with the more extremist forces in Czech politics. It's bad for his image in, in Europe. He likes to be uh, on photographs with people like, uh, like Macron or, or politicians uh, of this importance. So he does not, he, he doesn't mind voting with them, but he definitely does not want to rule with them. He, if he tries something, he will try to persuade one of the, uh, the parties from the coalition, from the opposition blocks uh, to, to make a government with him. Actually, he said, he said, I think yesterday that he, that, that they, they, they will be, they, they would be able to form a more stable government with him than with four other parties uh, they are negotiating with right now. But all the opposition parties, all the five opposition parties have made so absolutely clear before the election that their main purpose is to um, eliminate Andrei Babish from power. That I cannot imagine any of them to go with Andrei Babish now, now when they have a very convincing majority of eight seats 
in, in the lower house. Yeah. Now let's talk about one of those opposition groups, one that was formed uh, as an opposition bloc, as a party alliance for this election, Spolu, the sort of centre-right group. It was a very successful uh, new agreement between those parties, which saw all of them gain seats um, and looks like that they're going to hold the, the balance of power. What has drawn voters to the, to the centre-right? Obviously, we've been talking loads about Babish because this election was really about him. Is this just anti-Babish reactionism or is there an actual... Uh, shift to the centre-right or to the right for Czech politics? This satisfaction with Andrei Babish was a large part of, of the story. The other part might have been that uh, the coalition's poll really did a very good job at campaigning. Even the, 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 the creating of the coalition itself to giving it the name Spolu in Czech means together. You know, it sounds it sounds like uh, the parties are able to make compromises, to, to, to deal, deal with each other, to arrive at uh, a common position. So, and that's something people really like. And then there is obviously the figure of Petra Fiala, the leader of Civic Democratic Party, ODS, who will probably be the next uh, prime minister. He is a moderate, conservative, very educated, former professor of political science, former rector of a university. He was even criticized the whole term for, for this, uh, for, for being too much professor-like, even boring, with no leadership instincts and so on. But at the end of the day, it somehow worked. Fiala um, was a very opposite of Babish when people could see both of them in, in a debate on television, for example. Fiala learned a lot during the campaign. He was better with each public event. And in the final television debates, the contrast between him and Andrei Babish couldn't be greater. He definitely played the part of a responsible political leader much better. We need to see how we will do uh, the real thing, of course. Yeah, absolutely. And that coalition was really able to build support from across the, the nation, but from different regions, obviously different parties winning in different areas and able to unite the sort of success of those smaller parties in different places. Talking briefly now about sort of prospects for uh, the future of the V4 and the future of the Czech Republic's place in the EU. Um, obviously, Babish has been uh, openly skeptical about uh, various parts of the European Union and has been quite close or moving more closely to uh, Hungary's Viktor Orban. Do you see this as a path that's going to continue? I mean, as you mentioned, um, Peter Fiala is not the European Union's biggest celebrant. What do you think we need to watch as people who are EU watchers in the coming months? The end of Babish at power will be, will be considered a great good news in Brussels and, and EU and, and, and perhaps in the, in the most important EU countries as well. It, it will mean that one of the populists that uh, threaten democracy in the Visegrad 4 is at least temporarily gone. We cannot, we cannot say for sure that Babish is not going gonna to enter politics. I mean, he he's himself not sure whether he's, he, he will be in the opposition as a member of parliament or whether he turns his uh, attention to other things. There are rumors that he wants to run for president in 2023. There are rumors that he wants to return back to his business and so on. I think that he he probably does not know himself exactly what he's going to do right now. But anyway, uh, for four for years at least, he's gone. For, he will be most probably gone from, from the government. And, and I think this uh, will, be, will be regarded as a good news uh, in, in the EU. 
Babish was not the main uh, the main threat to democracy in the in the in the Visegrad Four. You know that there are far worse concerns about Hungary and Poland and the Czech Republic. But he has his own problems. He is in almost open war with the EU because his company Agrofert received millions of European funds. Although he is a prime minister and is therefore in huge conflict of interests. And he has other problems. He faces criminal investigation in the Czech Republic because he used the funds to build a hotel near Prague, the famous Stork's Nest. And most recently, I should not forget that, uh, the Pandora Papers revealed that he also built an offshore structure to transfer money through several companies in British Virgin Islands and elsewhere to purchase a property in the south of France. And that might give him more problems with authorities in other countries, France and the United States as well. So, so I think that he will have uh, enough to, to take care of. And if he is not in the politics, if, uh, if he's out of government, it opens, it, this is very important, it opens a way for the Czech Republic to use the presidency of the European Union well. The Czech Republic will take over in July next year, it's extremely important. And with Andrei Babish in the office of prime minister, this, I think, would be next to impossible. That's a really important point, And we'll be watching uh, next year as Czech Republic takes over the presidency of the European Union. I'm afraid that's all we have time for. Jan, thank you very much for coming on to the podcast. This has been really uh, interesting and enlightening and has what been a fascinating election uh, in the Czech Republic. Jan Molacek, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the EuropeLex podcast. To stay up to date with European politics, make sure you subscribe. And of course, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Telegram, and YouTube. We're spreading across as many platforms as we can. Uh, you can find us at EuropeLex.eu and at EuropeLex across all social media, except Instagram, where we're at at Europe underscore Lex. See you next time. You've been listening to the EuropeLex podcast, hosted by me, Ewan Healy, and my colleague, Gabriel Hedengren. The managing editor was Polychronus Karampalas. The script was written by our hosts and our writing team, Matthew Nicholson, Yorgos Kokoris, Guillaume Ferreira de Senda, and Yanis Arshakian. The music was by Jose Alvarado, and everything we do is possible because of our patrons on Patreon. Cool.